Today we are continuing in our series called 12 Followers where we are taking a look at the uh, 12 disciples of Jesus, these men who were some of his closest friends in his inner circle. And uh, uh, today we're, we're going to be talking about three in one week. When you do 12 disciples and you have a six-week series, that's going to happen, all right? But uh, I'm doing these three this week on purpose because I believe that you're going to see a common theme, something that they dealt with, something that they worked on in different ways. And I, my prayer and my hope is, is that it would uh, apply to each one of us here today. Uh, my name's Todd. I'm the lead pastor. For those of you I don't know, I'm really glad that you're here. And uh, do you know what's right around the corner? Easter. Yeah, I think I heard someone say heritage. Y yes. <laughs> yes, to both of, both of those. So uh, anyway, that was, that was definitely a local person there that said heritage. So anyway, uh, yeah, so we've got Easter. I can't believe it. It's amazing how, like, you know, we're in Christmas, and then it seems like the Super Bowl's here, and then March Madness, and that's my entry to tell you that my alma mater, the Liberty University Flames are in, and they won their first tournament game ever, all right? I know I never talk basketball, not really even interested. I know you're shocked that I didn't play, but I didn't. Anyway, they're playing the Virginia Tech, they're playing the Virginia Tech Hokies, and we got some Hokies down here. One guy that used to play on the team, Andy, and uh, Andy and I figured out last night that I was in the crowd in Lynchburg, Virginia, when he played back in December of 92, I believe, or 91, one of those years, but anyway, so go Flames. All right, so anyway, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, it's, he told me not to pray for him, so I won't. I'll just cheer for him. So anyway, then we go right into Easter in the springtime, and um, I got to tell you, I'm really excited about this Easter here at Hilton Head Island Community Church. We got a lot happening, and today, as you leave, I want to encourage you to make it a point to invite some friends. I don't know, many of you realize that Christmas and Easter are, are two of the times of year that uh, there are some people that won't darken the door of a church, uh, except for those times of year. And uh, we will kind of put an exclamation point on this series uh, called 12 Followers on Easter. And I want to encourage you to take one of these uh, that whole weekend. we got a lot going on. Good Friday. Uh, we've got a Good Friday uh, experience that will take place 630 to 8 back here in Backstage. Uh, we do that every year, and it's such a great experience. Uh, then Easter services on Saturday. We need you to come on Saturday. Please, if any of you can come on Saturday, be there 630 p.m. Uh, and then Sunday, we have 8, 930, and 11, changing our service times around a little bit to accommodate three services. And uh, I, I promise you they'll all be full this year. Um, and so I want to encourage you to take these today and pass them along to friends and family members and loved ones and invite them to be a part of church. Cynthia mentioned as she prayed today, uh, and she prayed that God um, would expose some areas in us that we need him for. And I want to take a moment today, I want to take a moment this morning to um, allow you just a moment with the Lord um, in silence. Man, silence is very hard, isn't it? It's hard to get still. It's hard to get quiet before God. But I want to encourage us to do that this morning. And I want to ask you a couple questions as we kind of lead into just a moment of just you and God talking. I, I, want, to, I want you to talk with God for the next moment together, you and him, about what you walked in here today with that's a fear that's a worry, or that has disturbed your peace. Something that's a fear, something that's a worry, or something that has disturbed 
your peace. Because one thing I know and one thing the Bible tells us about life is, is that we will have trouble. Jesus promised us that, that we will have trouble. Unfortunately, the church has told us over the years that if we accept Jesus as our Savior, that everything will be okay. And that's true eternally. But while we're here on earth, Jesus promised us that there will be trouble. And I would imagine that some of you walked in with heavy trouble. And so what has disturbed your peace? What things provide worry? And what things provide fear? If you will pray and ask the Lord to expose that in just this moment of silence. Father, I pray that right now that your Holy Spirit would reveal the things that we're fearful of, that we worry about, or perhaps the things that disturb our peace. Reveal that to us right now, Holy Spirit. And Father, as you have revealed that, just in the quietness of this room, I pray that you would begin to grow our faith. Father God, I pray that you would begin to work on our faith, not the saving kind of faith, but the living, breathing kind of faith that is required for us to have in our lives to fully trust you throughout our lives. God, I pray that we would be able to trust you more in these areas that you just revealed to us. Help us now as we study three of these disciples. God, I pray that their story would help us in these areas that you just revealed. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. You know, those men, those 12 men that followed Jesus most closely were not immune to trouble either. They were not immune to difficulty. They were not immune to worry, anxiety, fear, chaos. And in fact, they had chosen to follow this rabbi by the name of Jesus who was preaching a completely different message than most of the rabbis and most of the Jewish leaders. And he often, in fact, he always turned conventional wisdom and he turned culture on its head. And so these men maybe even had more reason to have worry and to have fear and to have chaos in their lives. And so when we have this picture of these followers of Jesus, when we think of these men like James and John and Matthew and Bartholomew, or um, uh, you know, when we think of Philip and Andrew and Peter, we sometimes think that these were heroes of the faith, and in many cases they were. In most cases, they died for their faith. In all three of those cases, and all three of the ones we're going to look at today, that happened, and they were heroes of the faith. But that does not mean that they were immune. And we see little glimpses of, of what they built their faith on. We see little moments in time through Scripture of, of how their, their faith was developed and and what they stood on in terms of their journey with God. 
And in some cases, before they were used fully by God, they had to go through a process of having their spiritual metal tested to see if they were really ready to be used by God in the way that he desired. And today we're going to be taking a look at these three that two of them we might associate together because they were friends. The third one was not really kind of in the mix, but there's a common theme in their lives that I'm going to bring to a conclusion that I think may help some of you today. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be all over the book of John today. And we do have three to cover, so I'm just going to dive right into John chapter 11. And I want us to look at the story of this man by the name of Thomas, who was a follower of Jesus. And you can say it with me. What do we think of when we think of Thomas? What do we call him? We call him what? Doubting Doubting Thomas. Man, you guys were robust. I think you beat out the first service on that. You're like, yeah, doubter. Yeah, all right. Cool. I got it out there. I got it in there. Yeah. So uh, good Sunday school answer. So anyway, uh, glad that uh, you got that. But I got to tell you, if you really look at Thomas's life, I think it's a little bit unfair to give him that name, Doubter. Because there was really only one instance that we see that. We see it when it was Jesus has already died on the cross and he's come back to this earth. And, and, and Thomas goes through a period of time of doubting the specifics of his resurrection. And so that's where we get the name Doubting Thomas. And for sure, he doubted. But I, I might term it a little bit differently. It doesn't sound quite as good. But I would say that Thomas was a little bit more of a pessimist than he was a doubter. Doubting Thomas sounds a lot better than pessimistic Thomas. So that's what we went with over the years. But I want you to take a look at this story in John chapter 11, 1 through 16, as Jesus faces one of his best friends who has died. And I love this story. It's actually filled with a few moments of humor here. Check this out. John 11, 1 through 16. Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. By the way, last week we talked about Judas, the one that held the purse strings of the disciples who ended up being the betrayer. And so um, Judas was not at all happy when this very expensive perfume was used to wash Jesus' feet, and I find that humorous as well. But uh, Lazarus was ill, verse 3. So the sisters went to him, Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he went, uh, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now, I love this part here because when they go to Jesus with this thing that has caused them great distress, that their brother is dead, Jesus just responds in this calm almost humorous fashion, like, like, it's okay. It's okay. This thing that you're facing is not death. The disciples 
said to Jesus when he wants to go to Judea again, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Like, Jesus, really? You really want to go to Judea? This is, this is a problem. Like, there are people in Judea who are coming after you. They want to stone you, and you want to go back again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What a great response from Jesus to these disciples who are just so concerned about his well-being, probably theirs as well. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him up. Imagine one of the disciples, like Jesus says, hey, Lazarus has fallen asleep. And that was their understanding. It wasn't death. Their understanding, the way that Jesus said this, their understanding was that he fell asleep. Like, I'm sure the disciples were like, how deep of a sleep is this? Like, uh, what happened that he's in such a deep sleep that you need to go and wake him up? And, and so I just, again, just love, love this. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep... He'll recover. Like, Jesus, why are we doing this? Why are we going through all of this charade? He's going to wake up, Jesus. It's going to be fine, right? Verse 13. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. How many of you take a nap on Sunday afternoon? You, you like those Sunday afternoon naps? I, I'm raising my hand, okay? All right? There's like three of you. I, I believe there's probably more of you, okay? But that's all right. You can lie in church on Sunday. That's fine. So anyway, so like he's taking a nap here, and, and you know, they're confused about this. Verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Hey, guys, the sleep I'm talking about, He's not really asleep. He's not taking a nap. He's not like, you know, doing this like two-minute power nap thing. He's dead. He's gone. He's dead, all right? And so we see here, as the writer tells us, and for your, that Jesus says, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin. By the way, Thomas, this disciple, was a twin. And he said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, in reading this, I probably didn't read it the way that, like, Thomas meant it. Because here's a little bit uh, more of the way that Thomas probably said this to the disciples. He probably said this, let us also go that we also may die with Lazarus. And I kind of picture here Eeyore. Do you remember Eeyore? Like, yeah, it's not going to work out. Jesus is not going to be able to raise him from the dead, so let's all go because we're going to die anyway. Jeez, this, is a, this is like a classic example of, of kind of this tension that Thomas had. Because I, I want to let you know that as we read Scripture, as we read the whole account of Jesus and his disciples, we come to an understanding that Thomas actually had a great love and faith in Jesus. But in this moment in time, and in a few others along the way, we see him as a pessimist. 
He's like the person that you may know that you would consider a worry wart, right? Uh, don't raise your hand right now, but how many of you know someone like Eeyore who's worries about everything? And when, like, the sun's out and it's a beautiful day and things are going great, they're going to bring some doom and gloom into the situation. Some of you may remember the SNL Debbie Downer. Like, this is a little bit like Thomas was. He always, he, he never believed that and hoped that Jesus could do what Jesus could do. His faith in Christ was deep, and his devotion to Christ was meaningful. He didn't want to live life without Jesus, and he had this deep heart love for Jesus. He would have been glad to die with him, but he always had a little bit of a glass half empty view of the world. And maybe you're someone that's maybe a little bit like Thomas, and you're like, you know, doubt is not really something that's in my vocabulary, but lack of hope is. A negative outlook on life is often what I deal with, even when things look incredibly positive. And Thomas was one of these people in life that could never look on the bright side of things. But I want to point out that Jesus used him in a mighty, mighty way. We're pretty certain from other biblical accounts after the Bible that this was the man who went to evangelize India. In fact, uh, uh, I have some friends that are from Kerala, this province, this state, if you will, in India. And a lot of people believe that, that Thomas was the one that brought the gospel message to this specific area of India. And a lot of people who um, come from Indian descent who become Christians or they, they, you know, their family are Christians and they become Christians at some point in, in their lives, a lot of them many, many generations ago changed their name to Thomas because of their passion for Thomas. My friend Stan Thomas is from Indian descent and his family, uh, his mom and dad are from this place, Kerala, and, and he actually was over there doing ministry. And so you might find that. And so God used even this one who had a negative outlook in a remarkable way. We're going to come back to Thomas in a minute. I want you to see how Philip and Bartholomew, also called Nathaniel, you'll see that. Some of you will read this in John chapter 1, and you'll see Bartholomew or Nathaniel, and that's the same person. Uh, check this out in John 1, 43 through 51. We read the account of when Jesus met Philip and Nathaniel, and it follows him meeting Peter and Andrew. Let's check this out in John 1, 43 through 51. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And so these three um, grew up in the same area, in, in the same city, which we would probably call a village today. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, this is verse 46, he said to, to Philip, uh, he, like you found Jesus, can anything good come from Nazareth? 
This was a, this was a little bit of a, a snarky response on, on Nathaniel's part. This was a little bit like a, a low blow towards people who, who are from Nazareth. Philip said to him, come and see for yourself that this is the one. Jesus saw Nathanael in verse 47 coming towards him, and he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Isn't that awesome? And Nathanael is only mentioned twice in Scripture, and we find out that Nathanael was a man who was really close to the heart of God. Verse 48, Nathanael said to him, How, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, and he said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And I'm sure Nathaniel's like, what? Really? I didn't see anyone around when I was under the fig tree. You saw me, and in an instant, it hit Nathaniel like a ton of bricks that this man standing in front of him is, in fact, the Messiah. And I love that picture. He goes in a moment from someone who's being, you know, a, a little bit harsh and a little bit skeptical to someone who has great faith. I love Nathaniel's story, even though it's short and we don't read much about him. He goes from this place of skepticism to great faith in an instant when Jesus sees him and says, I saw you under the fig tree. Nathaniel answered him and he said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. In an instant, he believes. Jesus answered him and he says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these, he says to him. And he says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angel of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And Nathaniel is a great example of someone who loved Scripture. You see, Nathaniel knew the Old Testament incredibly well. And in fact, in that moment where he believed, I've got to think that the pieces of the puzzle came together and he realized that all of the prophets and the prophecies that they, that they gave to the nation of Israel and that they gave, they gave to us, all of a sudden connected and the, the puzzle just kind of came together right there in that moment with Jesus. And you see, Nathaniel's faith was weak for a second, but it was built on something solid, and that, solid, that something that was solid was the Word of God. You see, his understanding of God's Word is the thing that led him to believe as soon as he saw Jesus. Philip is a slightly different story. Philip's an interesting story. Because God used him in a miraculous way. But Philip was someone who we might consider in John, uh, uh, John MacArthur in his book, Twelve Ordinary Men, calls him the bean counter. The one that overanalyzed everything. Analysis by paralysis, or the paralysis of analysis. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands again, but how many of you know someone like that, Right? How many of you know someone who analyzes things over and over and over again and then they come to a point where it all makes sense and then they go back and they reanalyze it and they re-engineer it and they take it apart and they're like, yeah, this is it. And then they decide that's not a good enough so they got to re-engineer it and take it apart and redo it anyway. And at some point in time, you just have to say, man, when is it good enough? When is your faith ever going to click? It's kind of shown in the story of Jesus when he feeds the 5,000. 
And I love this story. It's found in John chapter 6, 1 through 10. Check this out. This is the story of Philip and his faith. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus had been performing all these miracles on people who were sick. And so there's a large crowd that has begun to gather. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover... The feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus turned to Philip. Don't miss this. Put yourself in Philip's shoes for a moment. And Jesus says to Philip, Hey, Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, remember, he's a guy that overanalyzes everything. He's a bean counter. And Jesus looks to this man to figure out how to feed. There might be 200 of you in here. We're not talking 200 people. We're talking about how many people? 5,000 and probably actually double that and maybe even a little bit more than that. And he turns to Philip without any resource and says, Philip, where are we going to buy bread? This is a little bit like Hilton Head at like midnight on Saturday in July. <laughs> All the vacationers have come in. It's turnover day. And they, they ransack Walmart and all the other grocery stores. I'm sorry if you're a vacationer. We love you. Thank you for coming to our island. We really do thank you because it revolves around you being here. But man, you guys take care of our grocery stores on Saturday night in the middle of the summer. And Jesus looks at Philip and he goes, where are we going to buy bread? I love this. This is just so great. Where are we going to buy bread? So that these people may eat. Look at verse 6. He said this to what? To test him. Verse 6 says, he said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Jesus knew. He was all man, but he was also all God. He knew what he would do. Philip answered him, and he said, Jesus, uh, 200 denarii, that was a, a lot of money in that day, the 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of these people to get even a little bit. They're going to be hungry at the end of this sermon, Jesus, so maybe make it fast. Make the healing fast. Make whatever you're about to do quick because they're going to be hungry and they need to get home. I inserted a little bit of my stuff there, okay? Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus says, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down and numbered about 5,000, and you know um, the rest of the story. Jesus performs a miracle, right? Here's the thing about Philip. We read this, I believe it's in John chapter 2, Philip was there when Jesus goes to Cana, and he goes to a wedding, and they run out of wine. And Jesus takes water and turns it into wine, and Philip was there. And I wonder if, like, in Jesus' mind, if he turns to Philip because he's like, you saw me turn water into wine. You know, this is not what Jesus says, but you, turned, oh, you saw me turn water into wine. Uh, so because you were there, maybe you've got the, you know, the experience and the opportunity to have witnessed 
what I can do, what the Son of God can do, and maybe you'll just go, yeah, we'll go find bread. Cool, Jesus, we'll figure it out because you have got it. And Philip wavers because he's human. And some of the fear, some of the anxiety, and some of the worry, and some of the chaos causes his faith to waver. We see it again when Jesus essentially says that the gospel is meant not just for the Jews, but for the Greeks. And Philip questions that. How could this possibly be the case? This is not procedurally correct. And so he questions God. And so here we have three different stories. We have Thomas, who's a pessimist. And I think that Thomas yielded to his pessimism about following Jesus. He yielded to his pessimism about following Jesus. It was the thing that was, in many cases, his lid. And so we see Thomas yielding and kind of giving way to that pessimism about following Jesus. Philip is an example of, like many of us, who gave in to his over-analytical, if that's a word, tendencies to question Jesus and his ministry. But Nathaniel, I want you to hear Christ's follower, Nathaniel leaned in to his knowledge of the Old Testament to confirm the validity of Jesus and his ministry. You see, Thomas's weak faith in Jesus created the doubt that he's known for that Jesus was really who he said he was. And I wonder how many of you are here today and you know Jesus as your savior. You have that saving faith in Jesus, that believing faith in Jesus, that God sent his son and died on the cross for, for your sins and rose again three days later and, and, and it was resurrected to life and you believe in him as your savior, but your faith is a faith that is a bit weak. This is a, a cardboard box, and in my house today, packages come in a cardboard box. I think it probably happens in your home, too, and they always have a smiley face on them, don't they, nowadays? Every package has a smiley face on it. So anyway, so I, I wonder how many of our faith is built on something like this cardboard box. Maybe some of the pessimism that we have, some of the doubt we have, leads us to have a faith that under the right weight, under the right pressure, with the right trouble, will give way, collapse, under the weight of difficulty, of fear, of chaos, of worry. And Christ follower, my prayer and my hope is, is that you build your journey with Jesus on a faith that's stronger than just a cardboard box. That you wouldn't be pessimistic about what God can do in your own situation, in your own life. And Thomas's weak faith in Jesus created that doubt, but Philip's small faith in Jesus created that doubt. I, I love this, Leslie provided this to me today. This is uh, like, I guess an expanded Lego is what it is. It's like a Lego that's been blown up. And I think Philip's small faith in Jesus is a little bit like building 
a faith walk on a Lego. It may look good sometimes, it may be fun, but at some point in time, it's so small. It's so small and insignificant that really, do you believe that Jesus can do the impossible in your life? Christ followers, your faith so small that you only believe God for what's possible and probable? Is your faith so tiny and insignificant that, that you, you would believe God for only things that are small? Or are you a little bit like Nathaniel? Do you have a strong and mighty faith? And is your faith walk being built on a solid foundation that can withstand the trouble that you're going to face in your life. I am so glad that Jesus chose to use Thomas because we all have our doubts, don't we? We all have our moments of pessimism. But if we build our whole faith walk on something like that, something that's so pessimistic, something that's so unbelieving, then what is our faith worth? And my prayer is, is that we would be like Thomas and at some point move past that pessimism. And, and then there's, there's Philip that had a small type of faith just, just overanalyzed everything and just had this, this difficulty really trusting God for the big things in life. And my prayers is that we, as his people, would not build our whole spiritual journey, our whole life's journey on something that is so insignificant and powerless. Would you build a home with this as a foundation? My prayers is that we would be like Nathaniel. And even those two other disciples turned it around in terms of their faith uh, for, for their journey with Christ and did amazing things for him. Nathaniel's an example of someone who from the moment that he saw Jesus and the moment that he encountered him had this rock-solid faith like this cinder block, a faith that was truly built on God's Word. Maybe you're here today and you're frustrated with life. Yeah, you're a Christian. Yes, you've accepted Jesus as your personal Savior, but man, you're not really excited about the way that things have worked out in your life. You're not excited about how that job went, that career went. Students, you're really not excited about how school is going right now, how some of your friendships are going right now. Maybe you're here today and you've been a Christ follower for a long time and God revealed something in your youth for you to do and you've not been able to accomplish it for him and you are frustrated and you are discouraged. And, and, and my, my, my challenge to you today is to really wrestle with this idea of, do I truly have big faith? Because listen, church, we have a big God. And he is a God of the impossible. He is the God who can see you through your challenge right now. He can see you through your worry today. 
and he can help you overcome the greatest fear that you have. But listen, if we as his people, if we who are people who have accepted him as our savior, and we call him our our Messiah, our Jesus, if we don't spend time with him and time studying his word and time just, just talking with him, praying to him, having a discussion with him in community with other Christ followers, then our faith is going to be weak at moments and it's going to be small at times. And I don't know about you, but I'd rather build my spiritual journey on a faith that's built on Jesus and his word. Where are you today? Maybe it's time to stop complaining. I like to complain. I'm just going to be real honest with you. You can ask my wife and my kids. I like to whine and moan. And of course, yesterday it occurred to me when all I do is whine and moan, I'm not building my faith walk on a solid foundation. Maybe you're here today and somebody's given you some great advice. Maybe the world has given you some great advice. Maybe you read a great book. Nothing, nothing, nothing is a substitute for building your walk with God on the one who came to die for you. Where is your faith today? And I'm not talking about the kind of saving faith, but I'm talking about that faith to believe that God is big enough to help you overcome your trouble. God, I pray for everybody who's gathered here today, those who have joined in maybe online. And God, we see in these three disciples a moment in time, a moment in their lives where they were tested in terms of their own faith journey. Yes, even those men and women who followed you most closely, who got to have your dust that you kicked up land on their feet and on their sandals. They were the ones that got to touch you. They got to see you with their own eyes. They got to watch as the miracles occurred, as the water turned into wine, as the, the, the little few loaves and few fish were enough to feed the thousands. They got to see the miracles that you performed, and yet they still struggled in their faith at moments. Thomas and his pessimism, Philip and being so overly analytical and scientific and numbers oriented that it never really added up. And God, I pray that those of us who are here today who pessimism and an over-analysis of the world prevents us from having a deeper, stronger faith in you, God. I pray like them that at some point in time we would overcome that and we can do the great things for you. God, I pray that you would make us like Nathaniel, Bartholomew, who was connected to your word, who knew your word, and even though in a moment he showed some skepticism. In the next moment, he just got it. Father, help us to build our journey with you on something that is so solid and that can support us 
when we go through the trouble that we face in life. God, I pray for that, that thing that you revealed that's the source of our worry, that's the source of our fear, and that's the source of the chaos, the thing that breaks the peace in our lives. And God, I pray that those things would not rock us so hard that we lose our faith in you. God, help us to have a deep abiding faith that's built on you and your word. Help us in those moments when we're weak. Help us, God, when we falter and when we fail to be able to get up and dust ourselves off and continue on in our faith walk. Help us to have the courage to do it each and every day. And I pray this in the strong and the mighty and the powerful name of Jesus and all God's people said.